The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our scripture reading this evening comes from James 1, 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that your word doesn't return void. And that when it's saying, when it's taught, when it's read, God, that it is what you say it is, living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Able to convict, able to encourage, able to comfort. But I pray wherever we are at coming into this room tonight, God, whichever one of those we need, Lord, that, that you will be faithful and present to speak what we need over us. Lord, that you would silence our hearts and our minds from the cares of this week, the cares of our lives, the cares of this world. God, would you help us to hear the sweetest whisper we need to hear that you have found us and we are yours. We need you. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be tonight. If you got a Bible, uh, go ahead and grab that. If you need a Bible, there should be some on the ends of the rows. You can take that home with you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. If we haven't met, my name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here. Uh, super excited to be jumping into a new series today. Uh, series starting days are some of my favorite because I am hopeful and excited and anticipating, and I hope you are too, what God might do in you through 11 weeks through the book of James. 
games. Really, really excited uh, for that. We have some resources we're going to be throwing your way. They're on our website as well as in your bulletin. Uh, one I want to draw your attention to is our James Bible reading plan. So if you don't have a reading plan that you're working through this year through the Bible, we'd, I would encourage you to hop on this one. Uh, even if you don't do the rest of this plan, one thing I would love for you to do is spend your weekend with us reading the book of James from start to finish takes about 15 to 20 minutes, and it's on the plan. Once, either Saturday or Sunday, sit down, take 20 minutes, read James from start to finish. If you do that, by the end of the series, you'll have read the book 12 times. And I can think of no better way to help you get out of this book what it is that God has for you than by reading it 12 times and then coming to hear it preached and proclaimed uh, on Sunday evenings. So jump in with that. would love to, to have you join us through that reading plan. My goal for today is really simple. I want to orient us around the book itself, where we're going over the next 11 weeks, and then help us work through the first 18 verses that Jess just read for us from James chapter 1. So here we go. If you missed it last week, our theme for 2022 as a church, what we're going for, what's driving us is this. We are following Jesus together with grit. That's our our goal. Our aim for 2022 is that we would lock arms together as a church, moving towards Jesus even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when it's painful. We want to be a gritty family of disciples to Jesus this year. And I don't know a better book of the Bible that pushes us towards grit than the book of James. James is a gritty book. And what I mean by that is that out of all the 66 books that make up what we call the Bible, there is no book in here more in your face. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Do this. Don't do that. Let's get moving. Then the book of James. The theme of the entire book is actually found in chapter 2, verse 17. If you want to know why it's a gritty book, just listen to the theme verse. It's this, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead faith is not just a cool band name. It's the theme of James. That's James' main concern in this whole book. Is your faith alive or is it dead? Is your trust, is your hope, is your confidence that you have placed in Jesus just words you say and beliefs you affirm and truths that you say yes to, or has it actually made its way into your life? Now, it's important here to pause to you, so you understand that when we talk about this idea of obedience in the book of James, we're not talking about legalism. James is not a legalistic book. Now, what we're going to find is 50, 59 commands in 108 verses. So there's a lot of do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But here's what you have to understand. Obedience to God is only legalism if you put it first in the gospel equation. Let me say that again. Obedience to God is only legalism if you put it first in the gospel equation. Here's what I mean. This is from Tim Keller. He says this. He says, legalism says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Legalism says, I got to do this stuff. I got to prove myself to God. I have to obey him so that he'll love me, welcome me, forgive me, accept me. The gospel says, no, you have infinite welcome because of Christ Jesus. And so now you live a life of obedience to God out of response to that. And this gospel-fueled obedience is what James is after in this whole letter. The gospel is true. Jesus is alive. You believe that. Now does it matter? 
Does it affect your life at all? Is your faith alive or is it dead? And over the next 11 weeks, we're going to take one at a time these different ways that James asked this question. He's going to say living faith looks like this. It looks like this. It looks like this. And tonight, our first one is this. He's going to say living faith matures through trials. Living faith matures through trials. I want to pause here uh, real quick, just pastorally. Uh, this is not in my notes, so I'm sorry if I say it wrong. Uh, I was reading a commentary on this, James 1, and the very first line that somebody said is, hey, before we talk about the ins and outs of this passage, what you need to know is that this is infinitely true. It's God's word. It's authoritative. It's helpful. And it's really bad grief counseling. So I want you to know before we work through James 1 is that if you are in the middle of a trial, this is true. Everything I'm about to say is very, very true and very, very good and very, very helpful as it aligns with God's word. But what I want you to know is it's going to be hard for you to receive it if you are in the midst of that trial right now. And so what I need you to do is I need you to believe me. I need you to more than importantly than that, I need you to believe God and to trust that I'm trying to give you the goodness of God from his word for you in the midst of your trial. Trying to give you something to hold on to, all right? Let's get into it. James chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. New book. I'm excited. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. All right, pause there. This letter, James, is written by, he self-identifies, James. If you don't know, James is the half-brother of Jesus. So James and Jesus, the son of God, share a mother, Mary, but they have different fathers. James's father is Joseph. Jesus' father is God. And one of the most convincing pieces of evidence, at least for me, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, that he did die and rise again, is the fact that for most of his life, James did not believe in him. For most of the gospel accounts, James is against Jesus, pushing back against the ministry of Jesus, but then Jesus dies, and he rises again, and James becomes a leader in the church. He says, I'm believing this guy so much so that James, in the future, is going to get killed for preaching the gospel. Now, I have two brothers. You will not kill me because I'm professing that they are sons of God. But James is willing to die for the fact that he believes his brother is who he says he is that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did live the perfect life, that he did die on the cross, that he did rise again. And so James is saying, hey, this is true. And so he leads the church forward and he's writing to who he calls the dispersion, scattered, persecuted Christians that have fled Jerusalem, fearing their lives because they believe in the gospel. Verse two, here's the first thing he says to these scattered, fearful Christians. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. All right, a couple important things from that verse. Look at the phrasing. First, he says, count it, consider it. James puts the weight onto them. He says, you have to take an active approach of marking or considering your trials. And then he continues, as all joy, all joy. Now, what he's talking about there is that not, that not that it's exclusively joy, but that it involves joy. And so what he's saying is, okay, when you are facing trials, consider it, mark it as joy. We've defined joy before as this. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being infused with hope because of the goodness of God. James says that's what you do in trial. You count it as joy. You have a pervasive sense of well-being that even when life is blowing up, that God is still good. You still have hope in him. And then he finishes that verse. He says, when, underline that if you like to write in your Bible, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, when. 
Trials are a part of life. That was true then, 2,000 years ago, that was true today. Trials will come. They're a part of living as broken people in a broken world. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James says, you know this. You know in life, when you're pressed, when you're pushed, when you're tested, that produces something within you. Think about uh, working out, right? If you want to produce strong muscles, you have to put those muscles under stress, under strain, under trial. Think about if you want to grow in your job and your vocation. You have to take risks. You have to do hard things. If you just do stuff that's easy for you, you're not going to get better as a, at your job. Think about relationships, Often the best relationships are the ones that have walked through stress and strain and trial. And the same is true of our faith. James says trial produces something in you. Namely, it produces steadfastness. The, to to kind of co-op our theme, trial produces grit. If you want to be a gritty disciple of Jesus, you're going to have to walk through trial. Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That perfect and complete means mature in the faith, grown up in the faith. So here's James's argument in verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy when you face trials, because trials lead to steadfastness, and steadfastness leads to maturity. Susan, you have to understand, there's a shaping that God wants to do in you to make you more like Christ that he intends to use the trials of your life to accomplish. In fact, James would argue that there are things God wants to grow in you that are not going to come despite of trials, but through trials. But here's the deal. If your life, as we talked about last week, is set up for the sole pursuit of ease, or you just want the easiest life possible, or if you don't expect trials as a part of living as broken people in a broken world, or if you don't believe in a good God who can work all things in the midst of your trial for his glory and our good, then trials are not something God might use to sanctify you and mature you. They're simply something to survive. So what happens, if that's your mindset, God's not good, I can't believe this is happening to me, you start asking these questions in the midst of your trial. How do I endure this? How do I get out of this? And when will this end? which are not bad questions to ask. But James has a new question in mind. What does it look like to count this all joy? What is it that God might be doing in the midst of this? James says a living faith learns to ask, what is God trying to mature in me? So the question for us as we consider the rest of this passage is this, trials are going to come. Are you going to let them serve your maturity or not? Trials are going to happen. Are you going to let them do the work God wants to do in you? Are you going to let God mature you through the trials? Because here's the deal. Living faith doesn't just make it through trials. It matures through trials. And there's a difference. There's a difference between making it through, surviving, just getting through it, and actually maturing. Let me give you a really silly example. This is a moment of vulnerability for me. It's one of my goals for 2022. Be more vulnerable. I need you to receive me with gentleness. When I was 10 years old, I was larger than the average 10-year-old kid. And when you are larger than the average 10-year-old kid, you get told that you should play football. So my parents signed me up to play football. Here is my team photo. Yeah. Had more hair then. So they signed me up. I'm going to leave that up just so you guys can just be gentle with me. Think about that anytime you want to yell at me about church problems, all right? Think about that guy. 
a long time ago. So they signed me up and I said, okay, this is, this is fine. Now, me as a 10 year old, I was not like the let's punch each other and wrestle kid. Like I was like the let's read books, okay? Like I was not the like let's rough house. I was just not about it, but they signed me up and sure enough, I got put on offensive line. I got chosen to play center. If you don't know what the center position is in football, it's the one that hands or snaps the ball to the quarterback. And so they send me out there and it's fine. Like I don't hate it, but I also don't love it. And really for the first four, first four games of the eight game season, it's awesome. And it's awesome because there are three of us on the offensive line together that are all just pure 10 year old studs. It's me, my last name's Olsen, and two guys by the last name of Gore and Glover. They call us the OGG. <laughs> Olsen, Gore, and Glover. And we dominated. It was awesome. I was like, this is fine. I get to snap the ball, push kids over that are half my size for an hour, and then I get to go home and eat Wendy's. Like, this is a good thing for 10-year-old Tim until game five of the season. We played a team called the Southside Bulldogs. We were the Aiken Tigers. They were the Southside Bulldogs. They were our rivals, or so we were told. So we show up, and we learn pretty quickly while they're warming up that they have not only one kid, two kids, but three kids just as big, if not bigger, than the OGG. So we're freaking out. They run a 3-4 defense. What 3-4 defense means is the center is that they have a guy that literally lines up like five inches from my face every time I'm getting ready to snap the ball. So we go up, we get the ball first, first play of the game. I stand up there, I'm ready to snap it. I snap the ball, I blink, and next thing I know, I'm laying on my back gasping for air. Promise, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I get taken out of the game, I'm hurting. Tears start streaming down my face. I, like got my helmet on because I don't want anybody to see because I'm trying to act tough, you know. One play goes by, the coach comes over. All right, Olsen, like get back in the game. And I'm like, no. Like I, I literally, I, you saw it. Well, I'm not doing this. My dad comes down from the stands. He notices I'm not going in the game. My dad doesn't do empathy. His word's not mine. I love my dad. He just is not like the, what's wrong? He's like, what, what's wrong? And I'm like, I'm not going in the game. He's like, you're not quitting. You're going in the game. And so I go into the game and I survive the next 60 minutes. I mean, survive. I mean, like I'm snapping the ball, like falling already. I'm like, you don't have to knock me over. I will just go on the ground. Here's the quarterback. We lost like 28 to nothing, I think. So anyway, I took an approach that was just trying to make it through. I played the last two games of the season and I quit. The other two members of the OGG, Gore and Glover, took a different approach. They had that first snap. They got knocked on their butts and they said, all right, we got to grow. We got to mature. These kids are big, but we can be bigger. We can push first. We can go get it. We can do this. And they spent the rest of those 60 minutes of that game getting better and better and better, letting that trial mature them. They played that season. They played another season, another season. Fast forward. This is how the story ends. Eight years later, I'm a freshman in college at the University of South Carolina. I go up to the student section with my friends to watch the game very first game, and I look down, and who do I see warming up to play offensive line for the University of South Carolina? Gore and Glover. There is a way that you can make it through trials, and there's a way that you can mature through trials. And that's a silly story, but that's true spiritually, right? You're going to face trials. The person sitting next to you right now is going to face trials. The person in your community group is going to face trials. And there is a means by which God wants to use that trial to mature you. And James says, hey, are you going to let it? Or are you just going to make it through? Head down, wondering, frustrated, angry at God, feeling alone. Are you going to say, okay, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? And how do you want to grow me? So the question becomes for the rest of our time that James is going to answer is how? 
How? That's the goal, maturing through trials, not just making it through trials. How do we do that? James is going to give us four ways. Well, we'll handle them fairly quickly with the rest of our time. Four ways that James is going to give us to not just make it through trials, but mature through trials. Number one, we ask God for wisdom. We ask God for wisdom. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So James goes immediately from telling us the purpose of trials to mature us and grow us into gritty followers of Jesus into a message about asking God for wisdom. And this is not by coincidence. The wisdom that James has in mind here is directly related to having eyes that see what God is doing in the midst of our trials. Because here's what happens. In the midst of our, our trial, our suffering, our pain, we can start to fear. We can start to be driven by despair or anger towards God, towards others, towards our circumstances. Our our hearts and our minds can start shifting to just look out for number one and get by. We can begin to believe the lies of the enemy, that God is not good, that he is not with us, that he does not care, that he is not working. And so James knows we need godly wisdom. We need to learn to pause in our trials and ask ourselves and each other, what do you think God is doing here? We ask it directly to God, Lord, what are you doing in the midst of this? We cling to the promise that James gives us in verse 5, that to all who ask for wisdom from God, he gives generously without reproach, meaning two things. First, God is not angry with our questions and trials. When you're in trial and you're asking these hard questions, God, what are you doing? What is the meaning of this? What is happening? God is not angry with you. He says without reproach without frustration, without anger. God's not rolling his eyes going, why are you asking me? Just believe, just have faith. God's not doing that. He's welcoming our questions. Second, he gives wisdom generously. God's not interested in a hide and seek game with his work in our lives. He's not trying to be confusing. He's not trying to withhold. God delights in revealing his will to his people. Now, here's what you have to know. That doesn't mean you're going to get the specific why of your pain right away. This is not a promise that you're going to go, okay, God, why am I doing this? And he's going to be like, because I need you to grow in patience. And you're like, thanks, Lord, let's move on. But here's the two things James does say we'll get out of wisdom. One, when we ask God for wisdom, he'll give us clarity on how to live in light of the trial. That we can count it all joy. We can trust him in the midst of it, grieving yet rejoicing, as scripture says. And two, we'll have eyes to see that God is doing a bigger sanctifying work in the midst of it. In other words, we need wisdom from God to see the what not necessarily the why. And the what is that God has not abandoned us, that he is still good, that he is still working, and that he is doing something bigger. I love the way Pastor Jared Wilson says it about this passage. He says, what if God's plan for you is not success, but drawing you so near to him in your dependence, your disappointment, and your devastation that you become more like Christ? The truth is that the Lord may not be committed to our success, but here's the promise in this. He is committed to his, and because of that, he is committed to us becoming more like his son. God is not committed to you having everything you want, your success on this earth, but God is committed to his success in you, which is your sanctification. You looking more like Jesus. So God is going to do what it takes to get you there. And so giving us wisdom in the trial is us saying, God, I need to remember that. Will you help me remember that? And then he continues, verse 16, verse 6, with a warning. He says, but when you ask, let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James says, don't ask God for wisdom in a trial and then be double-minded and doubt that it's going to come later in the day. Kind of push this into our minds. What being double-minded means is saying, okay, with this foot, I'm going to follow God. And with this foot, I'm going to go about it on my own. And so James says, don't be double-minded. Don't ask God for wisdom in your quiet time in the morning and then run to idols to give you the comfort you wanted from God 10 hours earlier. This is what it means to be double-minded. To be double-minded is to say, okay, in the midst of this financial trial, in the midst of this heartache with my money, I'm going to find my security in God and like a little bit in my bank account. Having, being double-minded means, okay, in the midst of this relational trial, I'm finding comfort in the Lord and in endless scrolling on social media so I don't feel so alone. James says, don't do that. Ask God and then believe him. Root yourself in the promise that he gives wisdom, that he is with us, that he is kind to us. He's gracious to us. It's the first thing. We ask God for wisdom. We look up. God, what are you doing in the midst of this? Number two, we view ourselves rightly. We view ourselves rightly. Rightly, look at verse 9. James writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In order to let trials mature us, we have to view ourselves rightly. And James says that means the lowly boasts in their exaltation and the rich in their humiliation. What he's saying here is that we need a gospel view of ourselves in the midst of trials. And the gospel both elevates and humiliates. All right, track with me here. The gospel humiliates. The gospel is a humiliating reality. What I mean by that is that necessary to receiving the gospel is humbling ourselves before God and owning some things as true that we in our flesh might not want to acknowledge. That we are sinful, that we're rebellious against him, that we cannot save ourselves, that we are separated and enemies from God, that apart from God, we don't deserve any of his blessings, any of his kindness, any of his grace to us. And so James warns the rich, don't puff up your chest with what you've done or what you have. Lower yourself because the first step in the gospel is to lower yourself. Complete dependence on God. But then he says, not only does the gospel humiliate, the gospel also elevates James says to the poor, boast in your exaltation. Why? Because in the gospel, Christ comes and raises us up. He seats us with himself in the heavenly places. He makes those who were God's enemies into his beloved sons and daughters. And so much of our and even my personal heartache in the midst of trial is that I can fall off in disbelief of one of those two edges. Either I can think of myself more highly than I ought to. God, I don't deserve this. I served you. I followed you. I did everything right. Why am I suffering in this way? Why am I going through this trial? Or I can view myself more lowly than I ought to. God doesn't care about me. God's not for me. He doesn't love me. He's not kind to me. He's not gracious in the midst of that. But maturity, James says, comes from seeing ourselves rightly. We let the gospel elevate us and humiliate us before the cross. We see that it's all grace that it's all him. And this grounds us in our trials because in gospel humility, we stop asking, why would God let this bad happen? And we start saying, I can't believe any gift I have from God. You see that difference? 
Why, God, why would you let this happen? But gospel humility says everything I have from my salvation onward is a grace gift from you. It turns it into worship. But then we also boast in our gospel exaltation that God cares for us. He adores us. He has not forgotten us or abandoned us. He cares deeply for our pain. So that's number one. We ask God for wisdom. We look up, God, what are you doing in this? We, we view ourselves rightly. We look inward. How do I need to view myself in light of the gospel? Number three, we live for God's reward. We live for God's reward. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So James circles back to his original point. He says, hey, remain steadfast in trial. And he says, if you do so, that you're blessed because there's a promise of the crown of life. It's the same crown that Paul references in 1 Corinthians 9, where he talks about running the race of the Christian life to receive the imperishable wreath of God. It's, it's the, the crown of life, this reward at the end of the battle that is life. And here's what it is in the scripture. The crown of life is life forever in perfect joy and holiness with God. James says that's what's promised to all who love him, who all who remain steadfast in trial, who all who let trial mature us, there is promised a future day where everything will be made new and God will declare over his people, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what a living, maturing faith keeps its eyes on. We look past the trial to the future day where God will make all things new. I just finished a book uh, this week called The Korean Pentecost. Uh, it's a random book uh, about a biography of missionaries in Korea during the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, side note, if you ever feel apathetic in your faith, read a biography about a missionary because God just is do, has done work, is doing work incredibly across the globe. And uh, this book is in two parts. So the first part is about a missionary named William Blair. And he helped lead this incredible revival in the late 1800s in Korea, where literally in the span of a, like about 30 years, they went from a couple thousand Christians in Korea to over two million. And he was the one who preached this sermon that kind of set the flame and the spirit moved and this widespread gospel across Korea. So that's the first part of the book. And you're like, yes, God is awesome. This is a cool story. The second part of the book is by William's son, Bruce. Bruce followed in his father's footsteps and also became a missionary to Korea, but his ministry was not marked by revival, it was marked by suffering. See, in 1910, the country of Japan took over ruling the Korean nation. One of the laws that Japan implemented over Korea was that before church started, they had to first sacrifice on an altar to the Japanese gods. So they said, hey, you can keep worshiping Jesus. That's fine. But before you do, you need to offer to a shrine to our gods first and then go about your business. At the time, about half the Korean church said, okay, that's fine. We just want to worship Jesus. Leave us alone. And the other half said, no. Like, we worship the one true God and him only. Like, we're not going to do this. And it began about 40 years of intense persecution for the Korean church. And, and the author goes into all these details about uh, the suffering and the imprisonment. He said some of the ways they used to, to torture them is they used to take bamboo and they would drive it between their finger and fingernail. And as they were doing that, they would say, relent, relent relent. And it was their, they would literally have a shrine right next to them as they were torturing and getting ready to execute these prisoners. And they would say, all you have to do is sacrifice one offering on the shrine and we'll let you go free. 
And so over time, after persecution, after persecution, after persecution, the Korean Christians had this phrase they started saying to each other, and it came straight out of Matthew 24, 13. And in Korean, pardon my pronunciation, the phrase was kut gaji. Kut gaji. And it meant to the end. As they were being led out of their cells, they were walking kind of this hallway with all these cells lined up, heading to their torture or their execution. The other Korean Christians would shout out to them, Kutkaji, 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 to the end, to the end, to the end. Bruce, who's writing this, the author, he says, on the one hand, it was a call to the Christians. It was a call, hey, be faithful. Be faithful to the end. Be courageous to the end. In the midst of this hurt, in the midst of this suffering, know that it's not going to last forever. But he says there was a deeper meaning that the Japanese never understood. And it was not that they were supposed to be faithful to the end, but that Jesus was going to be faithful to the end. So the Koreans would shout to remember, hey, Jesus will be faithful, Kutgaji. Jesus will be faithful, Kutgaji. Jesus will be faithful to the end. And so any temporary trial you are facing now, no matter how painful, no matter how sad, no matter how much it hurts, it is not the end. Jesus' faithfulness is the end. So what happens in the midst of our trial, when we have this deep desire within us for reprieve, and we want just the pain to go away, we want the heartache to go away, we want the trial to go away, the problem is not the feeling, the problem is that we sell ourselves short on the true fulfillment of that feeling. Right? And so in the midst of that trial, we say, all I want is for this to go away. And Jesus says, it will. You just have to look past the temporary. It will go away one day. There will be a day where it will be redeemed and made new. You just have to learn to look past the temporary okayness, the temporary relief to a future relief where one day Christ will return and make all things new. That's our hope. That Jesus is faithful. And that leads us to number four, the last thing James gives us. He says this, he says, we trust in God's character. We trust in God's character. 13 through 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We break down verse 18. I want you to understand this. First, he says, God out of his own will. No one coerced God. No one forced him. God chose to bring us forth. In the original Greek, it's the same term as bringing new life into the world or giving birth. It's the the term the New Testament uses for being born again. So God chose to bring us new life. How? By the word of truth. That's James's phrase for the gospel, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? James says so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, meaning that we would be the first of God's whole creation to experience redemption. That one day God is going to redeem and renew all things, and he's starting with us, the first fruits. So walk these verses backwards. Just trust me, look how powerful this is. Starting in verse 18, walk it back. Verse 18, because God has saved us and redeemed us by the power of the gospel. And verse 17, he does not shift or change. There is no variation to him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because in that sameness, God gives good gifts to his children, then verses 13 through 16, do not be deceived in the midst of your pain to think he is not good or has no purpose for your trial. 
In other words, we put it in a phrase, since God has saved us from our sin, we can trust that he will see us through our sorrow. It's James's point, 13 through 18. God has brought us forth by the word of truth. We are the first fruits of redemption. He has saved us by his own choice. So you can trust that he is good because he has saved you and he will see you through. And we know that because that's the gospel. The gospel is that God has used the greatest trial there ever was to bring the greatest need of redemption there ever was. That's the good news of Jesus that we celebrate. The death of Jesus, his trial of pain, suffering, and death, where he goes to the cross, he takes our sin. The father turns his face away from the son, though they have lived in perfect fellowship for eternity. Can you imagine the physical and spiritual and emotional and mental agony? The greatest trial in history. God dies. And yet God uses the greatest trial in history to bring about the greatest redemption. That is through the death of his son, the sacrifice of his son on the cross, that God offers life to all who would trust in him. And so he doesn't change. He only gives good gifts. And so it's that same God who brought life out of death at the cross is the same God who is with us in the midst of our trials, who's with us in the midst of our pain. And so maturing faith says, all right, God, I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. This trial, it makes no sense to me. But I know that I'm not in control. And I know that you're good. And even though my circumstances right now don't tell me you're good, I can look back 2,000 years ago at the cross, which shouts across history that you are, in fact, good. And I can look back at my own life, my own personal history, that shouts, God, I know that you are good. That's what James is after in this whole passage. We, we look up. We say, God, I need your wisdom. I don't know what's happening in this trial. It hurts. It's pain. I don't know what you're doing, but I need your wisdom. We look in. God, give me gospel identity. Not to think of myself too highly above this. Not to think of myself too lowly that you don't care and you're not with me. Help me to look forward to a crown of life. That one day you're going to return and make all things new. And help me to look back at the cross. That you were faithful in the greatest suffering that there ever was. That's what we do. Living faith matures through trials doesn't just make it, it matures. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for James chapter one. God, thank you for the fact that you are good and you are true. And you do love us and you have not abandoned us and you've not ceased to be good because our life is painful. You've not ceased to be good because we don't understand it. You've not ceased to be good because we don't get what you're doing, God, but you are still good. Lord, and so I, I pray as we think about James, as we, as we spend the next 11 weeks looking at what it is you want to do in our hearts, what it is you want to do in our lives, God, I pray that you would help us to have a wisdom, eyes to see your hand, eyes to see your goodness, eyes to see your working, God. And I pray for those of us right now in the midst of trial, in the midst of pain, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of doubt, with all the lies from our sin and from the devil that want to tell us you're not present, you don't care, you're not with us, you're not good, you're not doing something. God, I pray that you would speak louder than the noise. You would remind us, Lord, that you've saved us from our sin and so you will see us through our sorrow. I pray that we will root ourselves in our gospel identity. God, the gospel which says that we are way worse than we ever want to admit and yet way more loved than we can ever imagine. And that you are good. 
you used the greatest pain, the greatest trial, the greatest suffering, the greatest sacrifice in history to bring the redemption of the world, Lord. So we trust you with our trials. We trust you with our pain. We trust you with our uncertainty. And we trust you with our hurt. We love you. We need you. For all things in Christ's name, amen.